sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood i have a dream it's powerful powerful uh speech right and uh means a lot to me because i'm one of those sons of former slaves and this part actually comes from the slavery side of my family what you're going to hear today is an amazing story of how God is so intricately involved in all of our lives. Every single little detail from the families that we're born into, the neighborhoods that we grew up in, even the color of our skin, God is weaving all those amazing things together, right? And he's healing the racial divide. <laughs> he's showing us to what degree life really matters to him and all of us working together in that. And then also, he's bringing revival to this nation, too. So, uh, but it starts in the place of prayer, and that's a lot of what the story is about. So nothing just happens. Nothing just happens by chance or circumstance. Matter of fact, I don't think it's a mistake that this kettle pot comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. Uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. So on the way to church here today, you have no idea all the things that God prevented from happening on your way to get here. You have no idea all those little mistakes along the way that got you where you are here today prevented you from having some other mishap along the way. In other words, God is this masterful artist who is orchestrating all the little details of our life. Little do we know how much providence, as a matter of fact, the Puritans used to call God just that, how much providence is involved in every single little detail of our lives. Now, in the New Testament, we understand that through this amazing word called poema. It's in Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. And we're walking out the works that he prepared before us beforehand to walk in. That word workmanship is the word poema. Everybody say poema. So you hear the word poem in there, right? So think, think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor, a fabric maker, a weaver. So God has a tailor-made plan, tailor-made purpose, tailor-made journey for your life, right? Now, one side of that tapestry, it looks a mess. You ever see somebody putting something together, weaving something together, and on one side of it, it looks like a total mess. But then when they turn it around, you get a chance to see the beautiful thing that they're working on. That's what God is doing with this story, the Matt and I walking in. This is not our story. It's not a means to an end. This is a catalyst for your story because God has a perfect, a perfect plan, perfect journey that's laid out for you. Right? So um, honestly, I, I hadn't thought much about this pot until I went to uh, a little conference, Colorado Springs, Colorado. But before I, I got there, uh, I, I just, just to let you help you understand where, how we got to where we are, I have to tell you a little bit of my story. Is that okay? So uh, I got hungry for revival. It was around 2000, summer of 2000, and uh, got hungry for revival. I started reading books about revival in America. You know, I learned that revival is not when Reverend Flip Flop or Brother Wonderful comes to town, puts up a sign. It's when God shows up. I mean, like, for real. And I never seen anything like that and heard from other credible witnesses about what happens when God visits a city, visits a town, visits a region, visits a nation. Studying about the first and second great awakening, studying about the Zeus Street revival. And um, so I, I decided to go on my first ever 40 day fast. I read this book by Bill Bright. And in the book, he, he, he says, God, give me 2 million people who will do a 40 day fast for revival in America. I said, God, make me an answer to that man's prayer. So I start the fast, but the first day of that fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do about that? He said, start prayer walking in your neighborhood and pray. How many of y'all prayer walk? Or you walk and you pray, or you do that in your neighborhood. If you don't, start, because, man, amazing things begin to happen. That's what happened to me. I began to prayer walk my neighborhood. I got a chance to pray for people who were lost. I led people to Christ in my neighborhood, share the gospel with people who are uh, different religions, uh, and saw people healed in my neighborhood. But you know what? Even greater than that, God broke my heart for revival in America. And all I could do is just walk and weep and pray for revival. I just walk and cry, honestly. You know, I'll do it early in the morning, late at night, because we had that one little lady, you know, who was like the nosy neighbor. Like, remember Gladys Kravitz when that show Bewitched, who was just always in everybody's mess? There he go again. He's walking and crying. I don't know what his wife is doing to him, but there he go again, you know. We had that lady. 
But I was gripped. I was gripped. Script for revival. Gripped for something real. Something bigger than myself. So anyway, so what happens is there was this prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. I go to it. And then later on, there was this prayer gathering in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And a lot of the same people who were at that prayer event, the call, were speaking in the small little conference in Colorado Springs. So I thought, I'll go there and pray. I pray for these guys. Pray with these guys. I didn't know anybody there. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was weaving together a story. And he was doing it by connecting me to the unfinished business of the prayer lives of these people. Right. So. I get to the conference, and there's this little lady named Cindy Jacobs, who I didn't know at the time. She's praying for the young man named Dutch Sheets, <laughs> who I didn't know at the time, and another young man named Billy Olsen. And while she's praying and prophesying over him, she starts saying, you know, they're going to go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do these prayer and revival meetings, and God's going to sing you there. And she said, hold up, there's something to this, because Dutch, his real name is William. because Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? So it's about 500 folks there. I'm kind of sitting in the back. I just kind of blurred out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. She said, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, oh. Kind of raised my hand up. I was just trying to be a fly on the wall in this prayer meeting. I raised my hand up. She said, you William too, aren't you? You know, prophetic lady, right? You William too, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, get down here. Then she said, it's too wide up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> but when William does sheets and William Billy Olsen and me, William Ford III, when the three of us get connected together, the spirit of God falls on all three of us. We begin weeping over each other. Dutch sheets looks at me with tears in his eyes. He says, hey, if we do this prayer gathering in Williamsburg, you have to come with us. And I thought, okay, this would be like church camp, right? We'll exchange phone numbers, and then we'll never hear from each other again, right? Well, little did I know, Mr. Poema was reaving something together. So, and Dutch gave this powerful message where I'll share a little bit of that in just a second. And uh, it turned into this thing where he was like, man, that'd be powerful. This, I think there's this prayer, prayer journey that we're supposed to do with that to Williamsburg. We stayed in touch with each other and he said, no, well, not only do we want to go to Williamsburg, we want to go through all of New England and the Northeast. And I told him, said, yeah, we can bring that pot. My father said we can bring the pot from my family, use it to represent the prayer bowls in heaven. He said, oh, my God. So it turned into this journey called the Keller Tour. But I still wasn't sure if I was supposed to do this, right? So I said, God, I need confirmation. However, you feel like, you know, I need confirmation for things, right? So you ask God for a sign. You ask God for confirmation. There's nothing wrong with doing that from time to time. So I said, God, give us confirmation. Because I know what the uh, Archbishop of Can Canterbury, William Temple, said. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen. But when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> in other words, when you start praying, all of a sudden, these uncoincidental coincidences begin to kick in your life. That's what happened with this story, because here's what happened. When Dutch sent me all the names of the cities that he wanted to go to on this prayer journey, all of them, except for about two, were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, we went to Jamestown. The original settlement, Jamestown Court, was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down on the left. Went to uh, Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Uh, literally, I could go on. And uh, if I didn't have the city represented, I had the region represented. For example, went to the Chesapeake Bay Area. They used to call that whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. Now, why would God do this with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, it turns out that the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619, 400 years ago this year. Right? William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I want to turn the tapestry around and let you know what I'm working on. I'm going to use your guys, you guys' relationship to show that I'm trying to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. It's Acts 17, 26 to 27, where it says, God has made from one blood many nations and determined the bounds of our habitation time beforehand so that we may seek after God and find them, though it be not far from everyone. And the thing that connected us together was this teaching the Dutch had on synergy, synergy. And synergy is when two separate things, when they come together, they create not an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say when you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Right? Now, spiritually, we know that one could put 1,000 to flight and two could put what? 10,000 to flight. That's synergy. 
So think about it. We start getting all this agreement between red, yellow, black, and white. We can start getting all this agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see this synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? It's Psalm 133. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is for a brother to dwell there. And what? Unity is like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard, onto his robe. And the Bible says, for there. Everybody say there. Listen, God's looking for, for a place called there. It's the place where we drop our agendas, come together, and believe in the place of prayer. And so why is God like that? What, why does unity, especially unity through diversity, why does it move his heart so much? Anybody have kids? You have toddlers? Raise your hand if you got toddlers. Yeah. All right, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Because what's the first thing we do? I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, Samuel and Benjamin, right? <laughs> Little feisty guys. They love each other, right? But uh, when they're fussing and fighting, parents are toddlers, what's the first thing we do? We separate them. You go over there, you stay over there. Matter of fact, I think they, they believe that's their names now. Stay over here and go over there. <laughs> stay over here, sit down. <laughs> go over there, stay over there. You know? <laughs> they think that's their names now. <laughs> but when they're playing together in unity and agreement, man, I, I can't help it. It's, just, it's so cute. Right? You want to get right in the floor with them. You want to roll around the floor with them and chase them around the house. And if they ask you to go buy ice cream when the mother's like looking to get a sugar fix, and you drop them off and you run to the store or something else, <laughs> they can almost command it from me. Father God's the same way. When he sees his children operating in unity and agreement, oh, it has such a profound influence upon his heart. It's the place of the commanded blessing because it's the Father heart of God. For his children. But that says something else that was so profound and it's wrecked me for the past 20 years. He said this not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he was at his alma mater leading the student body in prayer. He's praying for the purposes of the school. And while he's praying, he heard the Holy Spirit say to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of the school. And he thought, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not into talking to the dead. But then the Holy Spirit said to him, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages coming together. And he began to understand that God will start something in one generation and then complete it exponentially through future generations to come. So finally, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 finally made sense to me where it says, God, uh, where it says, uh, uh, turn it real quick. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. It says this, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, that women made perfect without us. In other words, God starts something in one generation and completes an explanation through future generations to come. Hey, David, you're going to build my temple. Solomon gets to do it. Jesus said it best. He said, greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. So it's, it actually goes back to Psalm 133 because actually Psalm 133 is not only connected to what God starts in our today, it's also connected to what God starts, started in our yesterday. In other words, that oil that dripped off that high priest's head that went to, from his head into his beard, we don't understand it because when we anoint somebody today, we just take a little oil, put it on our finger, we thump them on the forehead, and we call it a day, right? <laughs> That's not how they did it back then. Scholars like Jack Hayford and others will tell you that they took up to about a gallon of oil, that thick anointing oil, they poured it all over that high priest's head. When they poured it over his head, that oil dripped from his head to his beard and onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. And so he was anointed for his today, but then he also received an anointing from the past. So he received his anointing and that oil would drip from his head to his beard and then the oil would drip down and mingle with the anointing from the past 
on that same robe. And then it was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages, if you will. So everybody's looking for the next woman there, I'll lose something kind of book title. They're looking for the next purpose-driven this or that. Those titles are great. Those authors are wonderful. But look, God's not after originality. You know what he's looking for? A successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion anointing on them that was so powerful and not only give them, you know, make them impactful and relevant in this generation, but and make them a springboard for future generations to come in the place of prayer. So that's when I remember this pot in my family and I was gripped because I'm thinking about connecting with the prayers of those who've gone before me. Like I said, this pot was used for cooking. It was used for washing clothes, but secretly it was used for prayer. It was secretly used for prayer because they were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat it for any reason. Praying was one of them. So back then they wanted slaves to be Christians, but they called slavery the peculiar institution for a reason. It was pretty peculiar. They wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel back then and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. We know that's true. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. And it was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And so this man would actually beat him. The irony is that he would actually beat him if he heard him praying because they didn't want them to have prayer meetings because they thought if they prayed, it would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, these people would try to run away. So this man would literally beat them if he heard him praying. Give an example of how cruel the slave master was and that, and that the overseer was there in Lake Providence. We had a story passed down in our family about a great uncle named Uncle Willie who went fishing but uh, didn't ask. So they, they decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. It took a leather strap, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails attached to it, something like the cat and nine tails. And they beat this slave forefather of ours until the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, took a huge sheet, put lard or grease on it, and wrapped it around his body to make one big band-aid to try to stop the flow of the blood. But in spite of their efforts and because of this man's cruelty, he bled to death and died. So... That's how cruel slavery was back then on that plantation. And if they were caught praying, they would be beaten. But listen, folks in my family who had this pot, they were Christians. They were slaves, but they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen while everyone was asleep on the plantation. But to make sure that they weren't heard, they would use this pot. So they would go into a barn, take this pot in there with them, they would take the pot and turn it upside down. They would invert it, turn it upside down, and then they would prop up the edges with rocks, about three or four rocks, so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then lay flat on the ground or prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. So one day, freedom comes as this young teenage girl decides to keep this pot and this story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this, this story in our family, and she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett then passed it on to her daughter, Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, and I'm thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival. I'm thinking about the heart that he's given me for the next generation. And I'm thinking, my God, I can agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential us that can be released and created from that. Then Dutch said something that was so powerful and so profound. He said, 
you know, when I was praying about this whole thing and just thinking about how God used that part in your family and he said, I needed my own confirmation about whether or not we need to do this prayer meeting. He said, uh, said, God, you really want me to take some cast iron cooking pot around the country to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? See, Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they're not plastic bowls or wooden bowls. The Bible says they're golden bowls because that's how precious your prayers are to God. There's not one wasted prayer in heaven. You say, you want me to have some cast iron cooking pot to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He said, his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse said, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord <laughs> shall be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers the same way there's a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. Then he said this, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony They use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I'm glad he said generation. Yeah, come on. I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were also white Christian abolitionists. They know if any person was a slave was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. They let their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God <laughs> rather than compromise and wink at slavery. One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy here in Alton, Illinois. It's not too far from here. And uh, he was, when a slave was beat to death in this town, he became an abolitionist, took a strong stand against slavery. So God hadn't forgotten about people like that. So think about it. Back then, there was a Supreme Court law said, called Dred Scott, which said the slaves had no rights in the courtroom. But because of revival, that law got broken in the hearts of every person, so much so because of revival that people, who didn't, people who in the North began to fight for people in the South who didn't look like them. So that's why I'm saying, you know, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, listen, he could release another powerful revival today. He can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can put an end to mass incarceration. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut, out, shut down crack houses and, and put an end to the meth problem that we're having across the country. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. Right? I was praying one day in prayer, and the Lord said to me, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? And I began to see, and I don't have time to go into it, just the connection between the, the whole fight for human dignity from slavery, even to what's happening with the, the life issue. Listen, when the people that we cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that some of the people that we can see will become marginal, even to the place of being eliminated. All right? So in other words, the same God who wept over Philando Castile and the five police officers uh, who were killed in Dallas, he's the same God who weeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. So he wants us to contend for another awakening, another revival, and <clears throat> he began to show that to me through this dream that he gave me about Martin Luther King. In the dream, I'm on my way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church with a good friend, Lou Engel. And, uh, but in the dream, we couldn't go to Dr. King's church first until we first went and picked up Dr. King, right? Of course, it's a dream, so he's alive. And in the dream, he comes out of this house, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of this white duffel bag and he throws the bag down violently and he comes again to this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so <clears throat> in the dream, I go to pick up the bag, go to get, pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs him on my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. I wake up in the dream, and my pillow is soaked with tears. And uh, I've been weeping in intercession the whole night. I didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with my friend Lou. He, uh, he begins to weep. We didn't even know what the interpretation was. So I'm like, God, remind me. What did, doc, what, what did Dr. King say to me in the dream? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. 
I knew what God was talking about because I knew what it was like at 13 years old to be in a come uh, out of a convenience store with three friends of mine and a carload full of white guys just, you know, chased us for no reason at all, called us the N-word and say they're going to shoot and kill us. They did that for an hour and a half, scared us to death. I remember when I was 19 years old, being falsely accused of shoplifting by a police officer. When he couldn't find anything on me, he began to call me ugly words and try to provoke me in the fight just so he could uh, take me in for some reason. I remember being um, in my 30s and buying my first house and having the same police officer for the first three months stop me for the first couple of weeks uh, just for driving while black. I know what that's like, but you know what I've done? For every police officer and for every white person in that region, I put those three incidents on any person that I met for so long. See, it's Revelation 12 where it says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The word accuser comes from the word categoros, where we get the word category. The diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other. So that when we have one bad experience with one person or hear one bad story with somebody like that, we put that one bad experience on anybody else who comes before us. God is saying to us right now, get rid of your bitterness, get rid of your unforgiveness, get rid of your resentment, get rid of any guilt manipulation, get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. That's what he was saying to me. Yes, but the question God has for all of us today is this, what color is your baggage? Whatever it is, get rid of it because we need each other, because only a united church can heal a divided nation. But after I had this dream, my friend Lou Engle says, hey, Will, come share this at the Lincoln Memorial. It'll be MLK Celebration Day. I want you to share this. And uh, little did I know, Mr. Poema was connecting me to more unfinished business. Matt Lockett, come up. Please share. This is Matt Lockett. He's over the Justice House of Prayer in Washington, D.C., and Bound for Life. Been, I mean, leading this nation in, in prayer and intercession on the life issue and leading this praying for revival. Listen, this, this is one of my favorite intercessors on the planet, right? But uh, it's amazing how God connected us. So please share. I know. It's done. Maybe this will help. Still sounds pretty scratchy. Well, I want to kind of pick up where Will left off on the story. And I want to say this before I, I uh, kind of tell how my story dovetails into Will's story. Is that when you hear a, a story with detail like this, the temptation is to wonder, man, like that's, that's a really great story that God did with those guys. Uh, but I want to tell you this morning, this is, I believe God is using this story. This is an opportunity for God to expose the bigger storyline that he's writing, the story that he's telling. And our whole goal in sharing this with you this morning is actually to unlock your ability to see your part in the story. Amen? Like this is the goal this morning is to see how we are connected together and how we actually need each other more than we realize. So Will left off in the story uh, where he brought the kettle in the story to a prayer meeting on the Lincoln Memorial in, it was actually January 17th, 2005. I want to hit pause there for a moment and go back a year, exactly one year to the day. It was on January 17th that something really tragic happened, unexpected to me. My father passed away. And uh, when we lost him, if you've uh, been through something like that, you know, just take a moment and think about how much you depend on mom and dad. You know, as a young person, you rely on them for provision, but you're, you rely on them for the stories, don't you? Like they, you've grown up listening to the family stories year after year, re reunion after reunion. And I was like that. And, uh, but when we lost my dad, I realized that something was transferring, something very important was happening. And I realized that no longer would I be the recipient of the stories, but now the steward of the storyline comes to me. You understand what I'm saying? When you lose mom and dad, suddenly that mantle passes to you. You now have to decide, what are the stories that I'm going to tell going forward? What is the storyline that you are to tell with your life? And of course, all of us have, the, we've got the stories of the pain and the challenges, you know, and 
Maybe you've got like some, you know, the family stories that nobody wants to tell. Or maybe you've got the, the, the ones where it just seems like blessing just keeps rolling generation after generation. In those moments of transfer, you have to actually make some hard decisions right now where you have to find God in that storyline and discover what he wants to propel forward into the next generation. So one of the things that I set out to do was I wanted to find out after I lost my dad, what was our family history? Now that was a real challenge for my family because my dad was one of 16 siblings. Come on, Mama and Papa. And, uh, but, but for some reason, there had been a loss of records uh, and we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. Most, probably what, what accounted for it was somewhere along the way, somebody just stopped telling the stories. And so we had no idea where we came from. My dad would actually make a joke out of it and say, we're just a bunch of mutts from Kentucky. So he grew up on a tobacco farm in, in the middle of Kentucky, him and his uh, 16 siblings, and, and no one ever knew. And I, listen, I got cousins on top of cousins. People had looked. No one knew where our family came from. So I decided that year after I lost him that I was going to get the breakthrough and I was going to figure out what no one else had been able to figure out. And I spent the better part of 2004 searching, and I was finishing that year more frustrated than I began because I hit all the same roadblocks. I couldn't find out anything. It was a real, like a deep source of frustration for me because I really felt like God wanted me to find something that would connect me to the history of my family. And I couldn't find it. And it was during that time that <clears throat> I had a dream. Now time out. Will talked about dreams. I'm going to talk about dreams. We got any dreamers in the house this morning? Oh, a few. I bet there's more than you're letting on. So I'm talking about not like... Dr. King, I have a dream. I'm talking about when you go to sleep, your body's asleep, but your spirit's awake and God's talking to you and pizza doesn't get the credit. That's what I'm talking about. I, Chicago pizza, Chicago-style pizza, right? And, uh, and so I had a dream during that time. And uh, the dream was from somewhere else because it had stuff in it that I didn't know anything about. Three things. One, uh, God gave, showed me in the, the dream how he wanted to bring about the ending of abortion through day and night prayer. I didn't know anything about that. Number two, I didn't know anything about prayer. I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old, and I'm sad to say, like, I didn't know anything about prayer. Everybody thinks they know about prayer until you got to lead a prayer meeting. And you find out in about three minutes that you don't know anything about prayer. <laughs> For me, you know, you'd go to church on Wednesday night, and from 7 to 8 p.m., that was the prayer meeting where you spent 45 minutes, you know, talking about somebody's grandma with a broken hip, 15 minutes praying for God to give her strength to endure the affliction. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that was my experience. And so I didn't know anything about prayer. But the third thing, very strange about this dream, was that there was a man in my dream named Lou Engle. Will mentioned Lou Engle, his connection with him over the past. What's strange for me is I didn't know Lou Engle. I didn't know who he was. And so... Uh, this dream was, it was kind of like sticky, like I couldn't get it off me, like it wouldn't leave. I knew it was from God. I knew it was from somewhere else. And so uh, after a few weeks, I told my wife the dream, and I said, I think I'm supposed to do something about this. What a weird thing to, to say, like you're going to have a dream, and it's going to mean that you have to do something, act on something. By then, I'd found out there was a real guy named Lou Engle. He was really doing this thing in the nation with prayer, and I got a hold of him, uh, I got a hold of a, a man who worked with him through a friend of a friend of a friend. <clears throat> Excuse me. I called him. I cold called him. It wasn't a sales call. I just cold called him. And I said, hey, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really, what was your dream? I had no idea. Like, I, I didn't expect anybody to take something like that seriously. But I had no idea that in Lou Engle's world, like, dreams are like currency. It's like, it's like yeah, money in the bank. And so uh, I told him the dream. He said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord is sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. to pray for the ending of abortion. And we're going to do a prayer gathering at the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. And I was wondering, like, God, do you really want me to take time off work and spend hard-earned money to go to a prayer meeting on the other side of the country? I grew up in Indiana. I'm a Hoosier. But I was living out in Colorado at the time. And I was asking God, do you really want me to do this? And I got my hands on a recording of Lou Engle preaching. And I don't remember the whole message, but he made this one statement that just pierced my heart. He said this. He said, what moves you 
What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out when you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. Of course, that's referencing Moses and his burning bush encounter with God. But I, I, I was pierced by that. See, think about it. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. His people had been slaves for 400 years. Isn't it interesting that this is the 400th anniversary? I want to declare to you today that it's time for another exodus in America. <clears throat> Here's Moses taking care of somebody else's sheep on the backside of the desert. I don't think it was strange for him to see a burning bush. Come on, the desert's dry. There's lightning strikes. It wasn't strange that the bush was burning. What's weird is that it didn't go out. I'm so thankful that we serve a God that can set a bush on fire and it won't go out. You know what I'm saying? How long? The question is, how long are we going to walk around it? Because so, it says that, that when God saw that Moses turned and said, I will turn aside to see this sight, then he calls out to him, Moses. He calls his name. You know, God, I believe God has set bushes on fire for every single person in this sanctuary this morning. The question today is, how long have you been walking past it? Listen, that thing is burning for a reason. Oh, thank you. Praise the seven-eyed lamb. <laughs> Gotta love Midwest weather. Grew up in Indiana, it gets gray in November, and you see the sun in March, right? <clears throat> so I was praying, you know, God, do you want me to go to this prayer meeting? And I decided to go, but I had one prayer that I was praying. God, I want to hear my name called. I'd heard Lou say that statement. That was the cry of my heart. After a painful year of not being able to find anything out about my family, I just had this one prayer, God, I want to hear my name called. So I showed up at the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day, January 17th, 2005. I actually brought a picture of it. I want to show you. I like to, to show these things just because I think it helps you kind of be in the moment. And I've learned over, over time that moments matter. Everything can change in a moment. I have so much faith for little prayer meetings like that, little gatherings like this today. Think about that. What if you just change your perspective on what Sunday morning is about? What if this is a moment with God and moments matter? And anything can change. So I showed up at this moment. And that's the Lincoln Memorial in the background. And we're praying in the, on the steps there. Well, mostly I felt like I was a pedestrian. I just kind of walked around and took pictures because I didn't know why I was there. But if you look on the... Uh, the left side of the screen, you'll see that blue sleeve. And if you follow it all the way out to those gray fingertips, you'll see a man there, and that's Will Ford. The first place that I ever came together with Will Ford was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the very spot where Dr. King said the I Have a Dream speech. And so we prayed that day, and that evening we gathered at a local church, and Will brought this kettle out, and he told the story that you've just heard this morning about his ancestors who were slaves and prayed. And here, I knew nothing about my family history. It was one year exactly to the day that my father had passed away. So I was a raw nerve in that moment. And then he said this, that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett. My ears perked up because that's my last name. Who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., Wilford Jr., to Wilford III, the man on the stage. And so after the service, I went up and I met Will and we talked and we began to compare notes, and he said, well, how did your locket spell it, with one T or two? And I said, with two. And he said, well, our locket spelled it with one. Where were your lockets from? I said, well, we don't know. We think Kentucky. And he said, well, our lockets were down in Louisiana. And we just thought it was this amazing coincidence, right? What's the William Temple quote that Will shared? When I pray, the coincidences happen. When I don't, they stop. So it was this amazing coincidence, but you know what? It was enough. Praise God, it was enough that he and I became very good friends. We began to develop a relationship together. God called me out of the marketplace. I became a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C. I've been there for over 14 years. And Will and I began to run together and just do life together. Listen, guys, I think that's kind of how this is supposed to work. Just learning how to love each other well, do life together, and run and fight for the dreams of God. So Will and I began to lead prayer meetings all around the nation when we had the opportunity praying for racial healing, praying for the life issue in America, and praying for revival again, great awakening in America. Well, now, <clears throat> fast forward. There was a dream 
that God gave our group, uh, the Justice House of Prayer in Washington, D.C., that's very important to the story. So I want to quickly share it with you right now. You guys with me? It's so quiet in here, and I know we're running short on time, but this is important. Listen. <clears throat> in the dream, we were standing in this long hallway that was lined with courtrooms. And in the dream, the Lord spoke and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. And at the end of this long hall, there was a huge courtroom, and on the door it said Appomattox Courthouse. Now, do we have any history buffs in here? How many of you know what Appomattox Courthouse is? See, hardly anybody does. I, listen, it, it, no shame here. I slept through government class, okay? I slept through history, all of that stuff, so I, I didn't know this. I, let me just take a brief moment and give you some American History 101. So we had a civil war from 1860 to 1865. And in March of 1865, generally, there's a real popular topic, he is cut off in Richmond, Virginia, Peter, uh, in Petersburg, Virginia also. And the Union Army has put a siege on him. And they break through and they begin to pursue him across the state of Virginia. He's in retreat. <clears throat> he uh, is trying to get to uh, a resupply point because they're running out of ammunition, they're running out of food. His men are starving. And they get to a place called Sailor's Creek, which is right in the middle of the state. And it's there that Lee fought his last battle of the American Civil War. And three days later, on April 9th, this is the date and the place that we most know about, April 9th, a few miles away at Appomattox Courthouse, that's where Lee signed unconditional surrender. I want to declare another thing to you today. America is coming to another place of unconditional surrender. I believe that spiritually. So that's a significant moment in time because it marks the end of the American Civil War. Unfortunately, it also means the loss of 750,000 lives. That's the new estimates that have just come out in recent years. They used to say it was 620. It's now 750,000 lives lost. So in that dream, when God is talking about civil war language in the context of Roe v. Wade, you understand we took that very seriously. We knew that, that God was telling us that the same God who was concerned about the injustice of slavery and the shedding of the innocent blood of the African he feels the same way about this. The same God who broke the power of Dred Scott wants to break the power of Roe v. Wade. So we've contended all these years praying for the courts in America. Well, now fast forward again. <clears throat> a few years go by. And, uh, I'm with Lou Engel. He, he called me, actually, and he said, hey, we're going to do a large prayer gathering in the state of Virginia. But if we're going to do that, we first have to go pray at Appomattox Courthouse. We'd never been there. And so... We, uh, he flew into town. We took a small team to go and pray. And so we actually stood in the room at the McLean Farmhouse where Lee surrendered to Grant. It's been preserved. And as we were leaving, we went into a visitor center, and there was a little bookcase there with a few books on it. And Lou grabbed the first book on the shelf that caught his eye and opened it to the first random page. And if you go to the next slide, I want to show it to you. This was the random page that he turned to. And if you could see it, I don't know if you can read it there, but it says, the last shot, the battle of Lockett's farm. Now that's significant because this is the second time this strange thing has happened to me. See, when Will told the story of the kettle and he mentioned that it was handed down to the Lockett's, what was the one prayer that I had been praying leading up to that moment? God, I want to hear my name called. I had no idea that God would be that literal Seriously, I mean, you can laugh at that. That's strange. Would you agree that's strange? Well, now it was happening again, the Battle of Lockett's Farm, <clears throat> spelled with two Ts. And so I bought the book. I didn't know what this was. I began to study it. What I found out is that the last battle that Lee fought was at a place called Lockett's Farm. The last battle of the American Civil War happened in the front yard of a family named Lockett. Well, I was stunned by this. I was trying to process, God, what does this mean? This, this has to be significant. It was about that time that my brother got the breakthrough on our family genealogy. He got uh, records that no one in our family had ever discovered. And he called and he said, I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers through Virginia just a couple of decades after the Jamestown settlement. And I said, Virginia, man, if I got a Virginia story for you. And I began to tell him this story about the Civil War. And he stops me. And he says, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek, is it? 
said, that is exactly where it is. He said, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. Time out. Are you, are you following this story right now? That, that after years of praying the Appomattox dream, I find out that the last battle of the American Civil War happened in my ancestors' front yard. I actually have a photo of it. You can see it. The house has been preserved. If we could get up close, you would see that it's riddled in bullet holes, preserved from the day of battle. And right there in the front yard is a stone marker that says, here, Lee fought his last battle. Well, I took my team to this place. I wanted to go and see it, only to find out that the man that lives there, he knows a lot about the history. And so he invited us in. And I was stunned when I walked into his living room and framed and hanging on the wall was the locket genealogy. I got out my brother's research. It was exactly the same. This was my family. There's no exaggeration here. And he said, well, how much do you know about your family? I said, well, not much. And he said, you know, some of the lockets left here and went to Kentucky. That's the part we knew. Some left and went to the deep south and were involved in some very significant historical events. But then he said this. He said, some left and went to Louisiana. And in some cases, the handwritten ledgers had a clerical error, and they dropped one of the T's and changed the spelling of the name. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. That, that can't really be possible, right? That, 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 you understand, like, that, that's not really possible for this to be where this story is going. So, Will, why don't you come back up and join me, and let's share what we found out. So uh, Matt flies from D.C., comes to Dallas, and he, he lays out all this research, and we just kind of talked and prayed and cried, to be honest. Yeah. Right? And he's a researcher. I'm a researcher. We don't like flaky stuff. <laughs> and so after he left for like three or four months, we're just texting each other back and forth, like, what about this? And then, oh, yeah. Well, what about that? Oh, yeah. So my oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. And in the 1870 census, he's 90 years old. He's living in Lake Providence, Louisiana. So that's probably a place where he was a slave. He was there 90 years old, five years after slavery, 1870. And in that census, he said, though he lived in Lake Providence, Louisiana, he said he was originally from Virginia. He checked it out. The only Lockett's in Virginia at that time was Matt's family. We did another year worth of research. And so here's what we found out. Matt's family is the family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family down on Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the Lake of God's Providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family that you're born into, the neighborhood that you're living in, the city that you live in, maybe all that matters to God. They're in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he connects two people from those same family lines together and weaves our storylines together so we can war against injustice in our day and the cry for awakening in our time. Isn't that powerful? So then... Um, we also found about, uh, so we found out there's a treasure trove of information just unfolded after this. We learned about um, Napoleon and Mary Lockett, these two people here, you'll see here, they were like the Southern Bell aristocrats uh, for the Confederacy. They were down in Alabama, in that area, and uh, Napoleon owned lots and lots of slaves. Between he and his 11 children, they owned maybe close to 700, 800 slaves, maybe more than that. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, he was a planner. He was a, an attorney. He was also a colonel for the Confederacy. And his wife, Mary, she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired, an, a, hired a designer and designed the very first Confederate flag, and she hand-sewed it in her house with her friends. In other words, Mary Lockett, as ancestor, she was like the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. <laughs> And she came up with the idea for the Confederate flag. So that's the first flag that uh, they came up with. You see it there at the Confederate White House still today. That's the, 
That's, a That's the original flag. Stars and Bars. The original Stars and Bars, right? But they felt like, well, that flag looks too much like the Union flag on the, on, the, on, the, on the battlefield, so let's come up with another flag. And so that evolved into this flag here, right? The one that we know that's the, the most known for. But here's the thing. Think about it. Because of the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, next slide, the flag of surrender went up in their front yard because of praying people. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. So, but as everything began to unfold, it was like a year before we ever found this, the rest of this information out. So Matt also had in his family someone who was a revivalist and an abolitionist. So talk about that. Yeah, so you can imagine like, and now think about this for a second. It wasn't the story that connected Will and I. We didn't find any of this out till we had been praying together for about a decade. Like, can you imagine, like, to find out after all this time, suddenly my connection to this storyline is to that of the slave owner. That was really hard to find that out. And, you know, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but Will and I, we've had to do a lot of, you know, soul searching and talking and repenting and forgiving and it, it's ongoing in the process. God just, the way God lovingly handles us. But that was a painful thing to discover is to be connected to that of the slave owner. But once the genealogy opened up, it just seemed like, like you said, it was a treasure trove. And so we, when you go back a little bit further, see, there was another war before the Civil War. It was the Revolutionary War. What I found out was that this, uh, as the armies were moving, it, it was during the first great awakening, it had kind of, the revival had gone cold because of the war, but then it breaks out spontaneously in the middle of Virginia, and the Lord sovereignly led me to be reading a history book about this revival in the middle of Virginia, about the, the, the birth of Methodism. How many, we ever, you got anybody in here that's been a Methodist in the past? Come on, rich, rich spiritual history. So the Methodists, um, uh, the, this revival breaks out in Virginia, and it, in, in the book, it, it lists the names of the men who were added to the itinerancy of the Methodist circuit riders. And right there in the list was a man named Daniel Lockett. I get out the family tree. It's a hand in a glove. He's right where he's supposed to be. We knew he was a pastor. We had no idea he was a Methodist circuit rider. Now, that's significant because at that time, the Methodist circuit riders, they didn't just carry the, the gospel to the frontier with Bibles and hymnals in their horse saddlebags. They also carried a thing called a manumission form. They were inspired by the Quakers and they carried a legal document that allowed you, when you got saved, to set your slaves free at the same time. Can you imagine being a part of that altar call? Being told that it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Come on. And so what you see at that time in history is everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves literally exploded throughout the mid-Atlantic region. So, yes, we had a, a man, you know, we've got family members who own slaves, but we also have a legacy of a man who gave his life for the preaching of the gospel, for revival, and for abolition. And that's the story I want to connect to today for this generation. So think about it. All of our families, we have these things called generational curses, generational blessings, right? You're in one family where there's maybe divorce after divorce or alcoholic after alcoholic. That's the passing on of generational curses. Right. But then you also have generational blessings that overtake families where you see uh, prosperity and blessing and just amazing deeds get released through generational blessings. They, well, you know, those, those are themes that represent storylines. That's what they really are. And what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing of the hurt, the blessing of the curse. What storyline do we want to be a part of? And then he found out this other amazing thing. Yeah. Check this out. I'll give you a, a, one last example of choosing a different storyline. The, the Civil War ended. Slavery had ended officially 1867, two years after the war. See, it had been illegal to teach slaves how to read and write before then. But guess what? Even after the war, still wasn't very popular in the South. So it's 1867, and a former slave is trying to teach her young son, Robert, how to read and write. And they did it in secret. The legacy of the secret meetings was still going on because they feared that there would be consequences. And so one night, she's teaching her son, Robert, how to, trying to teach him how to read. And in walks Lucy Lockett, one of my ancestors. 
Only instead of consequences, she said, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. So she takes over tutoring the young boy in how to read and write. Young Robert was Robert Russomoton. He went on to replace Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. And go to the next slide, please. In 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial, where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that very spot and give the I Have a Dream speech. And 41 years after that, Will and I would meet on that very spot. Isn't that powerful? So. So think about it. This, this happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the Lincoln Memorial on Lincoln, um, um, MLK Celebration Day to the place where Dr. King said is I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't just poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings. Yes whose father is still answering his prayer. Father, I pray that they will be one so that your glory can come so that the world will believe. Maybe God had given up on the prayers of our family members. You know why I say that? Because the dream speech was birthed out of a dream. There's a little lady named Prathia Hall. How would you like to have prayer as your first name? Her name was Prathia because her daddy was a Baptist preacher. And she showed up at a Baptist church that was burned down by the Ku Klux Klan and Heron Bonga the King and several others were leading a prayer meeting in that church. And Prathy Hall began to say, I have a dream. And it gripped Dr. King. She began this rhythmic cadence. I have a dream this. I have a dream that. Hidden different things in prayer. Dr. King left that prayer meeting gripped by that phrase. Incorporated it in several speeches and also used it in prayer meetings. Used it in Detroit. But then when he was on the stage there in August, August 28, 1963, giving the I have a dream speech. They told him not to put it in the speech, but at the last minute, Mahalia Jackson leans over and says, Martin, tell him about the dream. And he says, I have a dream. This was birthed in a prayer meeting, right? And one of the things he said in that speech, I have a dream. He said, he said then he began to declare and began to prophesy. He said, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain. Why Stone Mountain? That was the place of the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan right there in Georgia. Let freedom ring from there. And he, he also said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners, will sit together at the table of brotherhood. So with your pastor and others, Matt and I, next slide, we actually went to that red hill in Georgia called Stone Mountain. About 23,000 people showed up. We shared our story there, right there at the place. Next slide, right there at Stone Mountain. It's the Church. largest Confederate monument in the world. Stand to your feet. So you hear a story like this, and this is the place where we meet the, your pastor. Guess what? You have unfinished business now. This is not just our story. This is Christian Hill's story. Y'all have been woven into an amazing storyline of what God wants to do in this nation. You come out of the state of Lincoln. God wants freedom to ring. You know, God bless your governor. We, we keep praying for him. But listen, we're at a place right now. It's not about black lives matter. It's not about all lives matter. Some people are saying even white lives matter. God is saying, drill down deeper. Life matters. But then there's also unfinished business in your own family. There's unfinished business. But to get to that, sometimes we've got to break away the generational curses that are blocking so if you heard us when we were talking, you, you identify some of those generational curses in your own family. You say, you know what? I want to be the one that changes the storyline of my family. If that's you, come on up. We want to pray for you. Thank you. Just the horrible storylines in our family. 
generational curses that have been passed down over and over again. Sin issues, iniquity issues. And just like Daniel did when he prayed, he forgave the sins of his forefathers. Lord, we forgive the sins of our forefathers yes, for everything from sexual immorality. Yes. Covenant breaking. Other curses that have come down in our family lives. Alcoholism, drug abuse. But we forgive all of these sins in the name of Jesus. But when Lord, we say, weave your storyline of hope through us. We, we refuse to believe that this is going to be the final say over our family even over this region, even over our nation, in the name of Jesus, that we take up the unfinished business of all those who have gone before us, in our family, Lord, for, for those who are called to be business leaders, for those who are called to be church leaders, for those who are called to be educators, for those who are called to be storytellers of our time and our day, that we ask you, connect us to your story in our family. The unfinished business of your son who said, greater works than these are we going to do because we're going to the, he's gone to the Father. God, I'm asking you in Jesus' name, give us Jesus' unfinished business for my family, for my own life. Lead me into the storyline of the ages. Oh God, every generation of curse of hatred, bigotry, whether it came from Freemasonry, whether it came from the Ku Klux Klan, whether it came from the nation of Islam or whatever, God, we break that now in the name of Jesus. We break hatred, bigotry, racism off of our family lines right now in the name of Jesus. We place the cross of Christ between us and all of that bitterness. And we come together to get rid of our baggage, God. We choose to forgive so that we can live. We choose to forgive so that we can move forward. We choose to forgive that we, so that we can be caught up in your storyline of what we're doing right now in the name of Jesus. We were in a church not long ago and we shared our story and a young man came up after the service with his mother. He was struggling with identity, sexual orientation. He's struggling with having, uh, wanting to commit suicide. He was lost, completely lost. And in a last-ditch effort, he came to church with his mom that morning. And he came up and he said, I need to know that God. God, I pray right now that you would connect us to the storyline that you've been telling God, the storyline that you've been working, the poema. God, that you have been working for a long time. God, we are here because somebody prayed. We are here because somebody prayed for us. All the way back to Jesus prayed for us in the garden. We are here. So God, we pray right now that you would connect us to that unfinished business. God, I ask right now, Lord, where there's been nothing but curses, that they would that the blockage would be removed in the name of Jesus so that blessing can flow. God, I pray that you would show us what needs to be repented of, God, relationships that need to be mended, but God, we long for the blessings to flow that you intend. God, we contend this morning, God, to be, content, uh, to be connected, God, to the work that you began so long ago. Help us this morning, God. Just right now, just you get in a moment like this and you just feel so weak, but oh, I believe that it's in the weakness. We just cry out. We just say, help. Help. Help me, God. Help me to know you. Help me to know you better, to see what you're doing, how to make sense of all the pain. God, give me a guiding constellation, God, for my life that helps me make sense of where I've been and how to release healing to others. Help God. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. Lord, it's your weaving all of this together with each of our story, Lord. And there's more to our story. It isn't over, it's just beginning. And Lord, I pray that each one of us that is here this day, I pray for everyone that's come forward, Lord, that your spirit would do something new and fresh and put a burning desire 
and their heart to fulfill their story for you, God. Lord, we're believing for breakthrough in our church, for the prophetic to be released, for gifts to be released, for healing to happen, for hatred to uh, just be done away with, Lord, for love to win over hatred, God. And so, Lord, we are praying that you would just continue your move of the Spirit upon our hearts and minds, even tonight into our 6 o'clock service. Lord, I believe tonight's a pinnacle moment for our church, for our Christian school, for our community, for Chicago, Lord. And Lord, I pray that each of us would catch the vision and catch the fire of how important it is for us to invite people out tonight, for people to come tonight, to hear the message that Matt and Will have laid upon their hearts, this message of racial reconciliation, of the importance of life and how life matters, God. And Lord, I pray we would see revival. I say we would see a, a, just a, a piece of revival breaking forth out of, the, out of this ground of this hardened ground of this area, Lord. And Lord, we believe miracles are going to happen tonight. We believe people are going to be set free tonight. People are going to get saved tonight. People are going to be delivered from hatred tonight. And so, Lord, we just cry out to you, God. <laughs> this service isn't over. There's more to happen tonight, Lord. Let that burn in each and every one of our hearts. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. So here's my challenge. We're not done. I'm going to let you go temporarily, but I want you to invite some people out tonight. I, they're going to tell more of their story, even some of this story again. But I really believe that, you know, I have a dream. I have a dream this place will be full, and that balcony will be full. And God's going to bring people to the altar tonight like never before. So this is your moment. This is your time, folks. Amen? See, we overcome by the word of our testimony, right? And, and, we, and by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. So invite people out tonight. I believe God's going to do something supernatural at 6 o'clock. So we'll see you all back then. And we're just going to believe God's going to have his way. Lord, thank you for each one that's here. Thank you for touching each one at the altar. And, Lord, we believe more is going to happen. And so, Lord, just help us call that right person, invite that right person. And, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.